Boyden Gray, who clerked for Chief Justice Earl Warren, but for our purposes today, what's important about Mr. Gray's background is that he served as counsel in the office of vice president for George Bush's vice presidency and as White House counsel when Mr. Bush was president. Haley Barber is a former governor of Mississippi, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, and someone who advised George H.W. Bush closely on politics again and again. Boyden, Haley, thanks for joining us. Domestic policy. You have a piece in the Wall Street Journal today defending George H.W. Bush for domestic achievements. Clean Air Act, let's take the Clean Air Act, and the argument would be he was just a kind of half-baked liberal. He didn't give the Democrats what they wanted in terms of direct controls to improve the environment. And as for conservatives, they're disappointed because he actually passed this legislation which added a regulatory burden to the entire national economy. Defend George H.W. Bush on that count. Will you please, Boyden? Well, it was a, it was a liberalizing, uh, in the old-fashioned sense of the term, uh, of the Clean Air Act, that it, uh, the purpose was to introduce market mechanisms and incentives to compliance, to lower the costs. And that's what it did. And it didn't hurt. It the took the Clean Air Act regime as it then stood and introduced incentives, and took market out, incentives. It took out as much as it could the command and control regulatory stranglehold and let the private sector figure out how to comply. And it reduced costs dramatically and uh, the benefits dramatically exceeded the costs, and it probably produced the greatest net benefits of any congressional action in the history of the United States. How, well, wait a minute, defend that one. How, how, do you, how do you measure, how do you even begin to get to the benefits of that? Because it basically eliminated SO2 from, from the atmosphere. Just gone. They got you know, from 20 million tons down to almost zero. All right, my very conservative friend Haley Barber, you satisfied by that one? Well, I think Porton's point is right on when he talks about the change the incentives and yep. it tried to make it more market-based. Uh, at the same time, in the Reagan administration, people uh, in <clears throat> the business world, people that were believing the private economy, never worried about Ronald Reagan being an environmentalist. And, uh, and so uh, there was hardly any Republican firm that practiced environmental kind of elements of lobbying because there was nothing to, there was nothing Practice to lobby. I mean, <laughs> President Reagan uh, just thought that was too much government. However, the point is we were, that, that Borden makes, we were going toward ways that we cleaned up the air and we've done a fantastic job of that. I mean, what we've done in the United States in reducing emissions is just gargantuan compared to the rest of the world. You look at the cities of the United States and the amount of greenhouse gases they have compared to the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is not even in our league. However, <clears throat> the difference between having what Boyden said and not having any uh, government regulation and government burden on you are, are two different things. And that's why some conservatives were concerned about it. I think those same conservatives today say, we are better off than where we would have been if we had let the Democrats do this, as they would have gotten a chance to do. I want to come, come next to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but Haley just talked about Ronald Reagan, and let's deal with that right now. Are these two men forever going to be on a reputational teeter-totter? When one's up, 
the others down. You can't say something good about George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, without implying denigration toward Reagan or the other way. What's the correct way to understand President Bush's four years in the context of the eight years of Ronald Reagan that preceded him? There was much more continuum than there was disconnect. Explain that. Explain that. Well, do you want domestic policy first? Sure. Or, well, who, who, who invented deregulation, basically? It George H.W. Bush when he was vice president. When he was vice president at Reagan's request. Right. So, I, you know, I don't worry about it. You'll get into the Disabilities Act. Uh, Reagan had a very soft spot in his heart uh, about people with disabilities. Uh, he knew all about it. He was very sympathetic to it. This was not, to him, a regulatory burden, opening up economic opportunity for people so like that. Tell, give our viewers, remind, we're talking to people who won't remember this administration. What was the ADA? It was what? a statute designed to remove barriers to a participation, a full participation in the economic life of the nation. Or even further, I mean, uh, doing other things. When Bush, uh, uh, President Bush, uh, now just deceased, um, had Parkinson's, he was in a wheelchair for the last few years of his life, and he had already created a situation where he could move around in a wheelchair with cuts in the, in the sidewalks and, and you know. So it's a practical now, matter. If you, when you if walk had, into a building and you see a wheelchair accessible ramp, that's the ADA. That's the ADA, that's right. the ADA. And he, he used to love to make fun of himself, you know, scooting around on his scooter, which he never could have done without the ADA. Without the ADA. I'm t I'm, I'm t I don't know why. This is not going to go on through the, our whole discussion, but I'm turning to you to see what the, what the uh, dyed-in-the-wool conservative makes of it. Government well, intervention that's undue? or You know, I was political director of the White House for Ronald Reagan. Correct. And I got to watch uh, how he did things, what he did, and, and I loved Ronald Reagan and thought he was the greatest president of my lifetime. But Ronald Reagan was a solid conservative who understood that with huge Democrat majorities in the House all the time, even though we had Republican majorities in the Senate his first six years, he had to compromise on everything. So Ronald Reagan put, put the line out straight and said, this is what we ought to do, this is what's right, this is what I believe in. But he knew that he was going to, in order to get things passed, he was going to have to compromise. And he used to say, you know, if you, if you can get 70, 80 percent or 65 percent of what you want, take it. You can come back and try to get something later. Remember, he was an old union president. I mean, he, knew, right. he knew how to negotiate. Right. And he did. And he did it well. So the results are a whole lot closer together than people think of because they think of Reagan's style, the way he came forward. And President Bush, uh, well, let me just say this. Both of them were true gentlemen. Both of them were considerate. All of us know, because we were there, they were so considerate and gracious to the staff. You know, when I was on the staff of the White House, George Bush treated me like I was his peer, which he and I both know I wasn't, but he just was nice to everybody. Reagan was nice to everybody. And that's one thing. I don't know if there's ever been an administration where you had two true gentlemen uh, who were hallmarks of their generations and I couldn't help but think it Bob Dole standing yes. up to salute President Bush's casket. You know, here two of they the They were very bitter political <laughs> political opponents. That's right, but two of the greatest of the greatest generation. Well, Reagan understood that when you're the other side's got his huge majority, you have to compromise. You have to get the best you can get. 
And he used to say, remember a fellow that agrees with you 80% of the time is your friend and ally, not some 20% traitor. And Bush was was very much of the same ilk when it came to how you got the toothpaste out of the tube. You look at what they did, and there's, Borden is right, there's just not, there's not as much difference as people might think or remember because there was different such, rhetoric and style. different t- styles. Right. So, last domestic, big domestic question. Sorry, foreign policy. I don't want to mention foreign oh, policy. Oh, absolutely. You want, go ahead. Let's go, you go with what, what's on your what mind What people right don't now. realize is that there was a lot of um, confusion, as there can be at the beginning of a presidency for someone who hasn't been in the White House, like Reagan had not been. And there was confusion in foreign policy. They ran through two or three NSC advisors. They had a problem with General Haig. You know, I'm in charge here when Reagan was shot. And the person who ran foreign policy for Reagan in the first two years was George Bush. Now, nobody knows that because Bush never advertised it, but he was made uh, head of crisis management. And what do you think that means? That means he's the NSC advisor for the first two years. Right. Uh, until George Shultz came in uh, as Secretary of uh, There's that State. tremendously impre- important moment when Reagan is shot, and George Bush, then Vice President, was on an airplane someplace or other, and the, he landed in Andrews, and the, the, the air, military was all ready to fly him back to the South Lawn in Marine One, and he said, nothing doing. He said, nothing doing. I'm Vice President. I'm, I'm going to come in by car the way I usually do. But the more important thing I, point I want to make is the Soviet Union's biggest ambition for that decade of the 80s was the, was the defeat of the effort to put in the Pershing missiles, which, Reagan, which was Reagan's first priority. And he sends Bush over there. The Europeans are very much opposed to it. He does a whistle-stop political, old-fashioned political tour, gets sit with rotten eggs and tomatoes with coal in, in, in Germany, and he turns Europe around. And he comes back, and the Washington Post has his editorial entitled, George Did It. Now, that was a huge defeat for the Soviets, but he did it with Reagan without taking a word of credit for it. Uh, And so when he ends up getting some of the fruits of this with the collapse of the wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union and liberation of Eastern Europe, he's part of the process. He was reaping the fruits of his own efforts. Own efforts under, under Reagan. They were not, and they were, you, you knew probably more about their relationship but what I remember most intimately was every Wednesday, I knew when Thursday was coming, because every Wednesday the phone would start ringing and the emails, well, there really weren't emails then. Got any good material for tomorrow's lunch. They had lunch every Thursday. And I think it con- consisted mostly of trying to top each other's jokes. <laughs> well, and look, I, I love George Bush, but he wasn't in Ronald Reagan's league when it came to jokes. <laughs> uh, you know, by the way, I had, I had a speech meet. I had to have a speech meeting with the then vice president, and his. It was an unusually packed day, so he just said, "Come with me," and he took me into the White House barber shop. Remember that barber yeah. shop downstairs sure. where Milt Pitts was the barber, and the first thing, he, and he had just come from lunch with the president. The first thing he did was tell me and Milt Pitts all the jokes he just picked up from Ronald Reagan. Sorry, go ahead, Haley. <laughs> well, I mean. Ronald Reagan became president with very, very strong views about foreign policy. Yes. Particularly about the Cold War, about the, the Soviets and that the evil empire and, and, and all that. But most people don't remember it was, while Ronald Reagan had these very strong and very well thought out views, it was George Bush that was a foreign policy expert. I mean, he'd been head of the CIA. He'd been head of the, he'd been Envoy the of China. Yeah, uh, ambassador to China. 
you know, he was a bona fide expert, and they got along like hand in glove. Uh, and and it was a huge, huge decade when the the defeat of the of the Soviet Union and the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union, the Cold War, without it being a, a hot war. I mean, both of them deserve a lot of credit for that. And things that you read in the immediate wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you see how well President Bush handled that. That he made it so much easier for Gorbachev to do what was in the best interest of all the peoples, the, the peoples right. of peoples. the Soviet Union, because right. there were multiple countries. And uh, there were certainly a group like Putin who, who opposed all of that. Now, he was a young you know, KGB, KGB officer right, at the right. time, but, but again, different rhetoric, different style. You don't, have you forgotten, tear down this wall? Mr. Oh, Trump? yeah, sure. You know who wrote that line? Ronald Reagan had a little something to do with it. But, <laughs> but I'd forgotten you wrote that, that <laughs> line. By the way, I was in, in the, George Bush's 83 tour of oh, Europe. You were on that trip? I was on that trip. And it, were you on that trip? No, I was you didn't not, go. No. But when you talked about Stones, the, I, I, uh, the staff was on a bus following him in the limousine in Germany. And we had bricks. I had to get down. A brick came through my window. It was serious. The hostility was genuine. And, and don't forget, Peter. The there was physical courage involved in his giving those speeches and making that trip. I just Sorry. say, don't forget, over here in the United States, there are a bunch of liberal Democrats who are cheering on and instigating this opposition to the Persian missiles, which ultimately was one more great step toward peace. the ultimate peace that came from winning the Cold War. Right. right. Okay, fellas, here's a hard one. Read my lips. No new taxes. Read my lips. No new taxes. He says this in the 88 convention, and then in 91, we get a deal, and I'm going to stipulate it before Haley gets to it. The Democrats were in charge of both houses of Congress during President Bush's all four of his years, and he had in the Senate Majority Leader, George Mitchell, a determined and wily and intelligent foe. Nevertheless, he raised taxes. He took the top rate from 28% up to 31%. He said in his own diary, if I go back and read my lips, this could destroy me. He knew it was politically risky. And there's some question even now about whether he got anything, whether he got adequate return from the Democrats, whether they engaged in adequate, adequate entitlement reform for him to pay the political price that he paid. What do you make of it? I. I may be wrong about this. I'm not an economist, and I'm not a tax expert, but I think he made a mistake. You do? I don't think he had to do it. You can speak ill of the dead. I think Darman, you know, Dick used Darman every would, uh, trick in the book to try to, get, management and budget, right. to try to get him to do it because the Democrats were putting pressure on him, and, and he was putting pressure on Bush. I don't think he had to do it to get what uh, he needed to keep the budget in balance, which is what Clinton was able to do. What, what made that possible was the extraordinary economic growth that Clinton enjoyed as a result of Reagan-Bush policies. Right. Well, uh, well <clears throat> first of all, certainly it hurt the president politically. Um, I don't think there would have been a Ross Perot, or if there had been, I don't think it would have amounted to much of anything. This was a, this was a big, big... It was a big event. ...problem politically. Uh, I'm like Boyden. I don't think economically that it was helpful. 
I think it was not uh, what caused, I mean, what it caused was just a slippage where the next thing you know, we're going to raise the tax again. The next thing you know, we're going to raise the top rate again. The next thing you know, Obama puts it up to 39.5 with a 3.5% Medicare tax on top of that. So you're really paying, under Obama's rules, 43%. Right. Uh, but I, I do think he did it as an honest effort to try to compromise and get something to work. And like Reagan, two or three times with the Democrats, the savings were never really there at the end of the day. You know, the savings were promised, the reform were promised, but they didn't actually happen. That actually, I hadn't thought of that until this moment. But Ronald Reagan did the same kind of thing. That TEFRA, whatever it was called, the TEFRA was... There were two tax increases after the first big cut. After the first big cut. And, and they were promising and both budget, cases budget cut, cuts that didn't... That just never materialized. Didn't materialize. Okay. And he regretted it. As I recall, in the 92 convention, he, he said... Uh, that's right. It was, he was comparing himself to Dukakis, then President Bush, just after having received the nomination to run for re-election. Whom will you support? The man who raised taxes once and regretted it or the man who raised taxes, I think it was 128 times that Dukakis had raised taxes in Massachusetts and enjoyed it every time. So he himself regretted it. All right, back to foreign policy. The Persian Gulf War, he rolls Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. The entire action, the bulk of the action takes place over 100 hours with General Schwarzkopf, H.R. Uh, McMaster later became famous. He was involved in a tank battle in which they destroyed the opposition and took not a single American casualty. We walked over the opposition, and when Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi forces were out of Kuwait, the president and commander-in-chief said, stop. We stopped there. We said we were going in to drive them out of Kuwait. We've done that. It's over. In other words, he did not go on to Baghdad to get Saddam Hussein. Did he do right? On that decision, yes, but I would say that there was nothing in the UN resolution or the congressional resolution or in common sense that, could have, that should have stopped him from arresting a lot of those Republican guards as they were trying to get back into uh, Iraq, uh, out of Kuwait. He could have arrested them. Rounded them up, Rounded them up, got them out of, out of action, and ultimately, if he had done it right, you know, this is hypothetical because we don't know. I think Saddam would have fallen of his own weight if he didn't have that Republican. Did vote. you ever talk to him about that in the post-presidential years? No, I mean, there was no himself? point. There was yeah. no point in discussing. Right. It was over. Haley? Well, it's, it's pretty easy to see the logic. We told everybody we were going in here to run them out of Kuwait. Now we've done it. But it is also very easy to see the strategic element that Boyden talks about. Yeah, it's logical to say we're going to do X, but we didn't say we weren't going to do Y. y. And uh, I think looking back historically, the likelihood that we would have had the, you know, the 2003 and, and the follow-on war, the second war. Yeah, is, uh, is, is much, much lower if we had gone on and done some cleaning up in Iraq. Remember, the, the, the Iraqis, uh, the, their situation there, the vast majority of them were Shia. They weren't even on the side of the government. Uh, 
So it, it wasn't like there was going to be some huge bunch of battles between Kuwait and and Baghdad because they didn't they didn't have any the Kuwait uh, the Iraqis didn't have any juice. Right. I mean they were cooked, right. and so it. it I, I think strategically, the the case is better made to keep going, not to try to overcome every, you know, village, but to to or to occupy Baghdad permanently. I mean, yeah, but to get to get the government cleaned out, get them back on a different path. I just think would have been a okay, a logical so we're, we're, logical thing. I'm leading you in a direction that makes it sound as though we're being critical of his foreign policy. So let me just a kind of summary statement on foreign policy. All that we've said about what the way you might have wished that that Persian War, the first war, had ended, set that aside for a moment. The Cold War ended. The Berlin Wall came down. The Soviet Union officially dissolved itself. There's some debate. Who won? Who lost? You can't say you won if your country ceased to exist. The Soviet Union is gone. And then East Germany and West Germany become officially reunited to the Germany that we know today. He goes in and takes Noriega out of Panama, demonstrating seriousness about our southern borders. And then he establishes an international rule of law by force, by driving Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Four years. Pretty good. What, 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 grade, what grade are you going to give him for foreign policy overall? I give him an A. Well, there's no question. It's, it, it's Pretty damn good. Historically successful. I mean, it's like you say, this is all in one term of one presidency. And it's so little cost to us, so little cost. And hey, American we made a little money off the Gulf War. You know, all <laughs> the countries paid for it. And my understanding is we made a teeny profit. We, the, Kuwait, the Kuwaitis and Saudis kicked in? Yeah, they kicked in. All the, a lot of people kicked in. And the U.S. government never, never paid a dime for that war. Well, I mean... If, if you look at Ronald Reagan's rhetoric, his policies, what he was trying to do, what he got accomplished, this was very natural follow-on and taking things further in the right direction. Uh, but I, I think the American people were perfectly, would have been perfectly satisfied if we'd have gone in, got rid of Saddam Hussein and gotten Iraq kind of back on a balance between the, the, the Sunnis and the Shia. And I also think you would not have had another war a few years later. That, that to me, I can't prove, but to me that's commonsensical. Um, what happened in 1992? Why did he lose? We're talking about a man that we all admire, we feel great affection for, much of that ordinary Americans could see and could feel. Uh, the economy goes into a recession in the second half of the administration, but it's relatively mild and, it, and the economy is growing again by election day. Is 12 years of Republican presidents just about as much as you could have hoped for? Why did he, what, ha what happened in 92? Well, there are three factors, and one was, I think, decisive in the end. Uh, one factor was he had trouble with, with, with a medical problem. He had Graves' disease, which, which makes you fatigued, lack of energy, and it, it wasn't until about six weeks before the election that they found the right dose. And all of a sudden, he became the old George Bush again. That's something most people didn't know about. I mean, he didn't advertise it. But if you were there every day, you saw it. You felt it. And you knew when... He was not himself. Not himself, and you knew when he was. So that was part of it. Part of it was Perot, of course, which we've talked about. 
But I think the decisive thing was the fact that the independent counsel indicted, basically effectively indicted him five days before the election. And no Lawrence, president can win, no candidate can win if he's under indictment. Lawrence Walsh, who is the special independent counsel, independent, special, counsel. independent counsel who had been appointed years ago, not years and years and years ago, He'd but been some, appointed, you know, yeah, several, some, several years, years earlier to investigate Iran-Contra, and four days before the election, he indicts a handful of figures. He doesn't actually indict the sitting president, but he indicts people. The, As you say, it's an effective indictment. The press treats it as an indictment of Bush. Right. right. And his, his poll numbers. You could actually watch it happen watch in, those, in those four days yeah. before the election. Uh, one point I think very important for people who don't remember it, the, the recession that happened in 91 was very flat. It was a very mild recession. I think it was the shortest recession since World War II, even to this date. Right. But it had been over for months before the election. News media never said it was over. The the government bureaucracy never said it was over. It was announced after the election. Oh, by the way, the recession actually ended seven months ago or eight months ago or whatever it was. And, and the other thing is Perot. Uh, H. Ross Perot, Texas oil man, actually, does anybody know what he had against George Bush? There was something. Per no, I know. I can tell you what and, happened. And he, and ex ex just so, Texas oil man, and he runs as an independent candidate. He gets into the race in 1992. He drops out. And then he gets in again. And on election day, he takes 19% of the vote. The final tally is Bill Clinton, 43, George H.W. Bush, 37. And H. Ross Perot, 19%. And I don't know a single commentator or observer who doesn't believe that if Ross Perot hadn't been in that race, George Bush would have picked up well over half of that 19%, correct? Oh, of course. Look, when I was chairman of the Republican National Committee starting in 93, and for the 94 election, our target was the Perot vote. You know, we hadn't had a majority in the House of Representatives in 40 years. We hadn't had a majority but for six in the last 40 years in the Senate. And we win both houses for the first time in 40 years. And the crucial you thing is... You picked up is, 54 seats in the House of Representatives that's, in That's exactly right, yep. and eight Senate seats. And we got almost 90% of the Perot vote. Almost 90% of the people that voted for Ross Perot against George Bush voted Republican in two years later. So, Boyden, what was, was it a Texas, a personal Texas feud that cost us... Cost George Bush the second uh, term. What was going? What happened? And the very simplest thing is, is that he had on a on a just a walk through, shake hands with the president, ask, "Can I help with the POWs?" Because he had a thing Prisoners about of war in, in, in Vietnam, in, in Vietnam right. and trying to get these guys out who had been in the war and never 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 released. Uh, but he turned it into actually sort of running the diplomacy of America for Southeast Asia, which was impossible. Corroded. Did. And that was really causing trouble in the State Department at the NSC, and it was probably illegal. So the decision is made, Reagan makes the decision, and Powell, I think, is the National Security Advisor, we got to shut this down. And Bush gets chosen to be the messenger because they had this common text that they thought that he would be the... He'd be able to talk it over talk with Talk it Ross. over with him, and Ross never forgave him for it, and never understood that it wasn't really Bush's decision, it was the government's decision, it was something that he that the government couldn't tolerate, any government couldn't tolerate. It is interesting that in 1984, Ronald Reagan got 60% of the vote for president. 
George Bush comes along in 1988, he's behind by 17 points, Boyden, in August. Yep. He wins the election by about 10 points, you know, just magnificent, and yet gets 38% of the vote four years later. It's, it's you know, the, the lowest percentage of the vote for any Republican candidate for president since 1912. And it isn't, if, but for Ross Perot, it's Ross Perot. It, that, that wouldn't have happened. He might have lost, but he would have lost 51 49. Or, yep. uh, so I think the, the, the big thing is Perot, Perot, Perot. Okay. Last big ish question here. Is George H.W. Bush's example, what do I mean by his example? Public surface, a certain toughness and determination. After all, politics is not beanbag. And he, he gave 20-some years of his life to it. For that matter, early on, the, the becoming a, a naval aviator at the age of 19 and getting shot down and moving to Texas when he could have lived in Greenwich and worked on Wall Street. There's a toughness about him, but there's a graciousness and a warmth and a, and a huge capacity for friendship. I sometimes I, I pitied Mrs. Bush. I pitied Mrs. Bush once I ended up, he invited us over in the post-presidential years to Kenny Bunkport when I had five little kids. And he had everybody go in the swimming pool and Mrs. Bush came walking up to the, from the house to do her daily swim and nobody had told her we were coming. Children swimming, splashing, she took it totally in stride, but that was the way her life was like because he was always bringing people in. So what we're talking about here is a gentleman. Is that still something worth aspiring to, particularly in politics? Or is, is being a gentleman just a, just a good way to get yourself beat? We live in a different time. Is he still worth it? Is, is that ideal still, is it a permanent ideal? Does it still have value? We do live in a different time. And we've proven that you don't have to be a gentleman to get elected president. The question you're asking is, does it still help to be a gentleman if you're trying to get elected president? I believe and I think is. if you have the other prerequisites, all other things being equal, yes, sir, I believe that. Somebody that is an honorable, true gentleman, that is trustworthy, that is loyal, that makes an effort to make friends, makes an effort to be uh, good to everybody, to treat everybody fairly, I think that is an advantage. Now, it may not overcome some of the other weaknesses, but I think it is, and Lord, I hope it is, because if it isn't, our country's going further in the wrong direction than I imagined. Boyden? I don't think I could add much of value to what... Uh What's just been said, I, it's, it's except for the fact that um, both parties have been guilty of, of engaging in a little crony capitalism, a little too much favoritism for the big moneyed interests in too many ways, and um, that needs to stop. And that's, I think, why Trump gets elected. But I don't think if Bush uh, had had a second term, he wouldn't have already started this process of uh, dismantling the so-called administrative state that's done favors for the rich and ignored the farmer and the, and the working man. What are you going to miss most about him? What do I miss most about yes. him? <laughs> His humor. Give us an example. 
Well, most of the examples, unfortunately, I think uh, you would agree, are just can't be told. <laughs> he did like an off-color. <laughs> Here's one that comes to mind because we're sitting where we're sitting. A few blocks from here is the National Press Club. And he ha I wrote the speech, so I went along to get him to hear him deliver it. And the speech was nothing special. I'm willing to say that myself. But he was introduced by the then president of the press club, who was a young journalist, and thought that she would make some jokes at his expense. So she went on and on and on about the unimportance of the office of the vice presidency. All the old, Benjamin Franklin suggested to be referred to as his superfluous excellency, John Nance Garner, the office isn't worth a bucket of warm spit. And the only remarkable thing any vice president had ever done was when Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton, Mr. Vice President. And she introduces him, and everyone is actually embarrassed, so the applause is sort of tepid. And George Bush said, thank you very much for that introduction, during which I felt an impulse that Aaron Burr would have understood. <laughs> Do you have any clean George Bush jokes? That's pretty damn good, isn't it? That's pretty good. Uh, you know, to me, the thing, if it, it, I think there are a lot of people like me, when they think back about George Bush and genuine American hero, one of the greatest of the greatest generation, somebody who not only from fighter pilot to won the Cold War and, and did a fabulous job of making sure that Soviet Union got sorted out right. Peacefully. I will always, as a boy from Yazoo City, Mississippi, who worked at the White House and then was party chairman and other things, I will always remember him for his personal graciousness and willingness to try to make everybody feel like he cared about them and I bet you there were several hundred people at that funeral today who are kind of of my generation who that's what they will remember about George Bush longer than anything else he was a true gentleman who treated folks like they wanted to be treated last question George Bush, this is a, in an interview with John Meacham, who was writing a biography of him, and this is just two, two or three years ago. These are his own words. I'm lost between the glory of Reagan. He's talking about his legacy. I'm lost between the glory of Reagan, monuments everywhere, trumpets, the great hero, and the trials and tribulations of my own sons. Now, I think you would both feel the impulse, had felt the impulse if you'd been there to say, no, sir, that's not the way you'll be remembered at all. You both have grandchildren. What, give us two or three sentences. What should your grandchild remember, cling to, about this man that you worked with for so many years? Well, the thing that, that I always impressed on my daughter, who knew him, I mean, yes. knew him pretty well, and was invited today, and we went to the funeral together. It was, uh, it was a great event for her. Um, but, what, but what I impressed upon her was that, uh, he, he, probably, he probably was too humble about what he had accomplished. And people never know the story. This is a, a domestic policy story. His first, the first part of his life was spent in very risky, innovative startup uh, business. When he was an oil man. When he was an oil Texas, man in the right. first half of his business career, uh, first half of his public career. And people forget that he knew so much about what made the economy tick. And he was tough as nails about it because he lost a rig once and he had ends up in London in the hospital with an ulcer. And 
he'd been through hell as a private businessman. And that really gave him, I think, the courage to, to be tough and, and unforgiving and unrelenting when the going got tough. And I, to me, the best example was when, when the press got down on Clarence Thomas and everybody on the staff was saying, you've got to pull his name, you've got to pull his name. He wasn't even going to think about it. And he stuck by Clarence Thomas. And to me, that's the thing that I think my daughter's going to remember was here was a man who was loving, who was forgiving, who was thoughtful, but he was tough as nails and, and underneath, tough as nails. Haley, George Bush's legacy. I hope my grandchildren... 30, 40, 50 years from now, look back, look at the, the time they're living in then and, and look back and they see that we've gone back to people in political leadership that are like George Bush, that are like Ronald Reagan, and that that's valued, that that's understood as being in the best interest of America, that these are the kind of people that made America great, going back to the founding fathers, Democrats, Republicans, and mugwumps. The fact of the matter is, I hope that my grandchildren get to see presidents like this because my greatest fear is I wonder if my grandchildren are going to inherit the same country I inherited. If we have enough George Bushes, they sure will. Boyd and Gray distinguished lawyer here in town, former White House counsel to President Bush, Haley Barber, former 63rd governor of the great state of Mississippi, among your many other attainments. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, filming today in the Hoover Institution's Washington offices. Thank you.